0: Greetings, you're listening to The Sacristy, a podcast where we seek to learn, discuss, and exult in the faith delivered once for all to the saints, as it has been passed down in the Anglican tradition. I'm Father Matthew Ainsley, the prospective vicar of All Souls Episcopal Church, a church plant in Horizon West Florida, which will, Lord willing, begin having services this fall. And I'm joined by my inimitable co-host... Father David Bumstead, the rector of Emmanuel Episcopal
1: Church in the Audubon Park neighborhood of Orlando, Florida. Uh, We're real priests with real jobs and real churches and service times are in our bio. We'd love for you to join us for worship if you're ever in town with us.
0: All right. This is number three. Number three. We're not counting episode zero. Yeah. But still listen to it. Still, you should listen to it. Yeah. It's good. Yeah. And we've gotten some good feedback. You Lots all of have been really, very kind. really kind
1: feedback, yeah. yeah. Thank you so much for everybody who's reached out to us over the last few weeks to encourage us, and, uh, and uh, thank you for keeping us in your prayers, for sure.
0: And we're on our way to 1,000 listens. 1K, on the way. And by on our way, I mean... We're about a third of we're the way there. We're about a third, there. yeah. <laughs> it's not too bad. I'm pretty excited. Well, we're slated for the Joe Rogan podcast, so after he interviews us, then <laughs> <Yeah>. who, knows <laughs> who knows where we'll go. The sky will be the limit. Exposure. Joe, call us. Yeah, we're actually not slated for that. At all. <laughs> <laughs> that was so necessary for me to let everyone know that we're not actually going to be on the Joe Rogan podcast, because I'm sure they were all like, whoa, wow. Literally nobody <laughs> thought that. <laughs> Yeah. Oh man! All right. What are we doing now? What, what are we doing today? Well, What's what, this episode about? I mean, yeah, I'm excited about it. By the way.
1: Yeah, we, uh, we 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 thought um, well, we laid down the heavy. I think uh, last time we met and and, and um, put out a podcast, and we thought we would do something a little bit easier, a little bit uh, uh, you know, a little bit of fun for us too. Um, we're gonna we call this episode the book wormhole uh, or ten books we love. It would be a really great clickbait article or clickbait on youtube and that's what we're all
0: about clickbait. it's kind of an homage to interstellar we're just talking about books we're we're locked in a tesseract screaming
1: murph
0: so if you've seen that movie regardless you probably won't laugh too hard at what i just said but i'm laughing
1: with at you. me <laughs> And All right. So we'll talk about our favorite books, but first we're gonna warm up uh, with a segment that uh, we're calling "Food Fight Me," where, uh, well, Father Matt
0: has a very strong opinion about something, and I, 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 don't know what what do you got, Father Matt? We're probably calling it "Food Fight Me" because how many times a day do I text "Fight Me" to you? A lot. A few anything times. you say that I slightly don't like, just hey man, fight me. We've never Especially actually. Especially I don't, I don't want to fight you. you. You get me on the ground, I think it's over. It's over, but you're (laughs) quick. I would fight dirty, too. But there we go. (laughs) Lots of... (laughs) (laughs) All right, food fight me. Food fight me. We're talking about food. Yep. And we're going to have a little bit of a fight because I love Taco Bell. Yeah. Taco Bell is the best Mexican food in the world, hands down. See, the thing is, (laughs) you're listening to this and thinking,
1: oh, Father Matt is saying that, like, ironically... But you can't tell. You literally can't tell. <laughs> I do eat it quite a bit. Not contrary every. to every warning, to all opinion,
0: to being an adult. Well, I remember a few years ago, there was a whole like scandal about it's not real meat. It's like all potato filler. I'm like, so what? What does that even matter? It tastes great, whatever it is. Yeah, the t- thing t- is, If, if it's cardboard. Yeah, that's the thing, though. It doesn't <laughs> taste great. Maybe it's the sauce. I feel like the Taco Bell mild sauce is kind of like... Taco... Yeah, it's good. It's like the Tex-Mex version of A1. Like, you could put A1 on a boot and eat that boot. It would be delicious. (laughs) (laughs) And so, whenever
1: we're out, uh, whether we're, um, you know, preparing for the podcast or getting uh, lunch together, it is always, always an option to run through Taco Bell. And, And we haven't heretofore done that. Uh, and Father Matt mortifying uh, his, his flesh uh, by by leaving off Taco Bell
0: for my benefit. Yeah. Uh, Plus, you have to eat it at the end of the day. Because once you eat Taco Bell, you can't do anything else because it makes you feel horrible. Like, I feel horrible when I'm in line at the drive-thru. I already feel bad. I feel bad. I'm already sleepy. It. <laughs> I, mean, I gotta go to the bathroom right now. <laughs>
1: And so we're calling this uh, the the eternal struggle because of Father Matt's undying, impenetrable, and impossible love of Taco Bell.
0: That's right. I mean, Demolition Man. Remember that movie from the '90s when all restaurants Three in the shoes, future, <laughs> all restaurants in the future, were Taco Bell. All restaurants. That's the line. And that was supposed to be sort of dystopian, but for me it was utopian. I'm like that sounds. Delicious. The future sounds appetizing. We found a new low on this podcast. (laughs) At any rate, uh, so... We'll put in the show notes one minute to skip to, (laughs) so you have to listen to this.
1: (laughs) Oh my gosh. Well, and so as we normally do, uh, leaving behind uh, the wasteland that is Taco Bell uh, and our our intestines um, after a Taco Bell trip, uh, we'll look towards the, the blessed hope of our Redeemer, uh, and we look towards the calendar days. Uh, we are hoping to drop this um, in preparation for the uh, 13th week after Pentecost, Sunday, September 8th. And, uh, and so in uh, as we head towards the calendar, the Lord be with you. And with thy spirit. Let us pray. Grant us, O Lord, we pray thee to trust in thee with all our heart seeing that as thou dost always resist the proud who confide in their own strength, so thou dost not forsake those who make their boast of thy mercy. Through Jesus Christ, our Lord, who liveth and reigneth with thee in the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forever. Amen. Amen. And so uh, it's actually a very busy week or so ahead of us for the Sanctoral calendar. Uh, September 9th, we remember Constance and her companions. Uh, Constance was an Anglican nun, Uh, among many other nuns from uh, several other communions who bravely cared for the sick and dying during an outbreak of yellow fever uh, in Memphis, uh, in Tennessee. In the 19th century, she's remembered, along with her companions, as a martyr of the faith. On September 10th, uh, the Episcopal Church remembers Alexander Crummel, a 19th century priest and missionary who is known for founding what is uh, called the Union of Black Episcopalians nowadays. On September 12th, uh, we remember John Henry Hobart, who is the legendary third bishop of New York. He's the founder of Hobart College and the General Theological Seminary. And he is buried under the chancel of Trinity Church in New York, which I've seen. It's kind of cool. September 14th, we have a major feast day, uh, Holy Cross Day. This is interesting. This is a day set aside for a festal remembrance of the benefits of the cross. Um, as opposed to the more solemn remembrance of Good Friday. Uh, the date refers to the consecration of the Church of the Holy Sepulchre. Uh, so make sure on the September on that date, September 14th, uh, to uh, say specific prayers and intention uh, in remembrance of Holy Cross. On September 16th, we remember Ninian, who is a bishop and missionary in Scotland. He was active in the 3rd and 4th centuries. September 17th, the church remembers Hildegard of Bingen, the 12th century Benedictine abbess, writer, composer, philosopher, visionary. Basically, one of the church's smartest people ever. Uh, her music is, is, very, is becoming more and more well-known. Uh, really incredible stuff.
0: Life before Netflix. She got a lot done. Yeah, apparently. she did. Yeah. <laughs> and then on September 18th, I'm very excited about this, E.B. Pusey. Uh, he was a Tractarian. There's the Oxford Movement, oh. which was the Catholic revival in the Church of England in the mid-19th century. Most people date it as beginning in 1833, the Oxford Movement, with John Keeble's fa- famous sermon, uh, National Apostasy. And I would argue the Oxford Movement is still going. Sure. Perhaps we're small evidence of that ourselves. And he was one of the principal figures Uh, Of the Oxford movement, he was an Oxford don and a champion of the centrality of the Holy Eucharist. Uh, Since we're talking about books today, this will be sort of an honorable mention. Yeah. But if you, there's a very thick book that you can get. So big. (laughs) It's it's an editorial work. He basically compiled the teachings of the church fathers. But the name of the book is The Doctrine of the Real Presence as Contained in the Fathers. Right. And it's great. So all the way through just, you know, what did the ancient church believe, about the corporal presence of our Lord in I'm the most holy sacrament. Looking at Father's copy, it
1: looks like a, a reprint by Neshota House Press. I, it is. I'm uh, fairly Good job, Neshota House. S- yeah, seriously. Uh, I'm fairly certain you can still get copies of those uh, through them or
0: by Amazon. And if that's not true, sorry. But an absolute boss. Yeah, total boss. And he's called a tractarian because of the tracts for the times. Right. They wrote 90 tracts. Some of them are reprints of sermons from earlier eras. Right basically showing the Catholicity of the English Church. Yeah, really, really great stuff. And, uh, and Father Matt said,
1: you know, uh, we, we see uh, ourselves, many of our colleagues, uh, our own practice um, as being in, in, you know, kind of a hopeful continuity with folks like E.B. Pusey, John Keeble, and others. So, uh, yeah, that's what we have to look forward to for the calendar for the co- uh, next couple of weeks. And so we we wanted to um, talk about some books we like. You know, at, as Episcopal priests, books are what an addiction,
0: uh, uh, a crutch, furniture. Sometimes furniture. <laughs> Lots of books I've bought. Lots of books. Never cracked them open. Yeah. <laughs> Many yeah. I have, our but libraries. some I'm like, oh, that's awesome. <laughs> Buy it on Amazon. I haven't gotten to it yet. Yeah.
1: Yeah, our backlogs are legendary. Um, and, you know, we we, we, we chose these books um, because, um, well, we like them and we hope more people read them. Some of them are fairly well known, so there's not anything... Uh, They've shaped us. They've shaped us, for sure. Uh, they're not. This is not obviously an exhaustive list of books that we like. And certainly, you know, when we think of books we like, we think of the Bible. Yes. The prayer book. Uh,
0: we didn't feel like those
1: were necessary to put in there.
0: And so since this is the book wormhole. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Such a bad title. <laughs> no, it's so great. So if you've seen Interstellar and he's trapped in the Tesseract behind the bookshelf in his daughter's bedroom. What are the ten books that we would want to be accessed as we as we're trapped in space beyond our three dimensions? I am just so amazed
1: <laughs> at how
0: far we're going
1: into this interstellar
0: <laughs> reference. I'm so happy. <laughs> oh my god! <gosh. laughs> so, all right. So this is going to be in no particular order. Well, I'll go first. Uh, so,
1: one of the one of the books, one of the authors. So legendary so um and uh, formational for you know thousands millions of christians certainly anglicans cs lewis and uh, my own every i think everybody has their own favorite uh, cs lewis book but mine is uh, the screwtape letters i love it i've used it to teach Amazing. i've used it to um to read uh, devotionally i i read i read through it often during lent for example Uh, And if you've never heard of the Screw Tape Letters, or perhaps you don't know what the premise is,
0: well, how would you describe the premise, Father Matt? It is correspondence between demons on how to best attack the human soul and lead it into eternal damnation. Yeah. Right? Is that a a good summary? super good.
1: (laughs) (laughs) And it's like the most metal C.S. Lewis book, which is one of the reasons why I love it. And so, um, and people are surprised to know, to to hear about this book and, and that premise, but uh, so in in one of the chapters, actually chapter eight, Wormwood is getting a lesson from Screwtape about peaks and troughs in the spiritual life and how the tempter demon, so crazy, a tempter demon can do well on his attack. And so uh, Screwtape writes this. Now it may surprise you to learn that in his efforts to get permanent possession of a soul, He relies on the troughs even more than the peaks. Some of his favorites have gone through longer and deeper troughs than anyone else. The reason is this. To us, a human is primarily food. Our aim is the absorption of its will into ours, the increase of our own area of selfhood at its expense. But the obedience which the enemy, which is God, demands of men, is quite a different thing. One must face the fact that all the talk about his love for men and his service being perfect freedom is not, as one would gladly believe, mere propaganda, but an appalling truth. He really does want to fill the universe with a lot of loathsome little replicas of himself, creatures whose life on its miniature scale will be qualitatively like his own, not because he has absorbed them, but because Their wills freely conform to his. We want cattle who can finally become food. He wants servants who can finally become sons. We want to suck in. He wants to give out. We are empty and would be filled. He is full and flows over. Our war aim is a world in which our father below has drawn all other beings into himself. The enemy wants a world full of beings united to him but still distinct. And, uh, you know, I get emotional sometimes when I read through screw tape letters, even now. And so the book is just filled to the brim with all of this stuff. And so if you haven't read the screw tape letters, go read it immediately. And if you haven't, it's
0: it's how long? Oh, it's It's so long. Yeah. You can
1: probably even read it in the afternoon. It's amazing.
0: Yeah. And if you have read it, read it again. All right. Our next book was also written by an Anglican. C.S. Lewis was an Anglican. Yes. And this is a living Anglican, N.T. Wright. Uh, His book, Surprised by Hope. So good. Which changed my whole life. Saved my life for sure. Changed the way I thought about eschatology, the study of last things. You know, I grew up in um, sort of rapture theology and dispensationalism and God's going to throw space, time, and matter in the trash can. (laughs) And I knew that wasn't good, but... (laughs) Okay, well, what's what's the alternative positive vision? I think that's the first time I've ever heard you say space, time, and matter in
1: the trash can.
0: I think N.T. Wright has actually said that. True. I'm paraphrasing him wow. and <laughs> in some of his uh, lectures and sermons. So it's a book about, you know, what is our hope and how we're surprised by the Christian hope. Right. And that our hope is not disembodied bliss, but it's the resurrection. And how the resurrection at the end of the age, how... An embodied existence and God's renewed creation energizes the church's mission in the present. And I know we're going to say this about every book on this list. Please read this book. Please read it. Yeah. Uh, because it's just representing the faith delivered once for all the saints. Right. Uh, this is a, a great quote from the book. Just reframing what we think heaven is mm-hmm. and what is the, the final destination. Heaven in the Bible is not a future destiny, but the other hidden dimension of our ordinary life, God's dimension, if you like. God made heaven and earth. At the last, he will remake both and join them together forever. Mm. And when we come to the picture of the actual end in Revelation 21 and 22, we find not ransomed souls making their way to a disembodied heaven, but rather the new Jerusalem, coming down from heaven to earth, uniting the two in a lasting embrace. Yeah, wow.
1: You know, it's really, it's amazing when you, like, listen to him. He's on a a current podcast himself. uh, I think it's Ask Tom, Wright Anything or something like that. Sure. And he still talks about this. You know, he still talks about reframing this. He still talks about the need for people to really connect with the idea of the new Jerusalem as God's promise. Like even, I mean, how old is this book now? Like with 15 years or so? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. And
0: it's just, you know, it's not, the goal's not going to heaven when we die in this Tom and Jerry thing where we're just naked spirits on clouds, eating grapes, even though we can't eat anymore because we don't have bodies and, and listening right. to the heart, <laughs> but it's not life after death. And this is, I'm, plagiarizing right here but his famous thing is it's not about life after death it's about life after life after death which is the resurrection right
1: yeah amazing amazing stuff uh the next book that we'd love to present uh to you this book is called the elements of the spiritual life it was written uh in the earlier part of the 20th century um well really in about 1932 it's a book written by uh, francis harton or fp harton and it is uh, his, his desire was to really explore, uh, describe the spiritual life, especially as received from the Western tradition, but not ignoring the Eastern tradition at any rate. But really, what is what is uh, what is a spiritual tradition that is applicable to Anglican use to um, to Anglicanism uh, and to you know especially Western Christianity in general? It's in such an incredible book. It is. Very challenging uh, if you're if you're not if you're not kind of um, really steeped in ascetical theology or theology having to do with the practice of prayer, which I wasn't the first time I read it. So it was definitely a little bit of an uphill climb at first, but uh, it was and is worth the time to delve into. It's such a great book, and uh, Father Matt and I were talking about like what, what do we what do we use as a like a quote a pull quote from. Sure. The elements of the spiritual life, I mean, the, the, there are paragraphs and paragraphs that you just have to follow to to really soak up and enjoy. But um, this is actually from a section about the sacraments uh, and uh, specifically speaking to priests um, and about how priests give direction in uh, as, as we hear confessions. And um, th- I found this particularly moving both when I read it for the first time, it stuck out, and then as I uh, prepared for our our time together today. um, He writes that the Holy Ghost is the true director of souls, and that the priest's business is to do his will and get out of the way of himself. A soul placed in our hands to train for God is not our, the priest's, property, but a precious responsibility for which we will be required to give account at the last day. And the motto of the director may well be that of St. John the Baptist. He must increase, but I must decrease. And so for, uh, for those of us who hear confessions, uh, for those of us who are in the standing in the gap, as it were, a strong word of both encouragement and, and of warning to take very seriously uh, the call set before us. But uh, this book is well worth your time. It is, it is challenging at the first, but very, very much worth it.
0: And we're going to shoot to do a podcast series on this book. Oh, yeah. In Lent of 2020, because it's a great Lenten it read. It is. It really is. I try to read at least a portion of it every single Lent. Yeah. It's is so edifying.
1: My own copy is, a, is kind of an old copy I got online back when I was in school, and um, it's it's very well-worn. Um, and the paper is kind of being punched through with pencil marks, which, well, I know offend many people out there who say don't write in books,
0: but I do deal with it. Perhaps another work of ascetical theology, yeah. but entry-level. Uh, Henry Nouwen's The Way of the Heart, and this is a book about... The Desert Fathers, and actually the book that really introduced me to the Desert Fathers. I had heard of them, but didn't really know much about them and their practices. And I mean, they're really the the fathers of Christian asceticism in a way. Yeah. And this is a book written to ministers, but for anyone. Right. And, you know, is our ministerial life shaped by the gospel or is it shaped by the seculum?
1: Right. And anytime we read, anytime anybody reads now, and one of the things that is always true is how applicable um, it is to their own uh, their own vocation. Uh, and I think that people who are um, not in ordained ministry would still, I think, really enjoy
0: this. Absolutely, we did it for a small group study at the church I'm currently serving at, Church of the Ascension in Orlando, Florida, and. It was very edifying, because it's talking about practices of, of how do we do asceticism today. He talks about we live in a very busy world. We live in a very wordy world. Mm-hmm. and Which we're, per- we're personally contributing to. Yes. <laughs> and what is like that every Christian needs to find their desert, that these practices of solitude, silence, and prayer are for all people. And that we need that sort of separation, even if we're not geographically moving into the desert, because we can't rescue others from the world if we're drowning ourselves in worldliness is a lot of what's going on in Nowen's book. Right. But he talks about solitude and solitude being the furnace of transformation. He writes this, without solitude, we remain victims of our society and continued to be entangled in the illusions of the false self. Jesus himself entered into this furnace. There he was, tempted with the three compulsions of the world. To be relevant, turn stones into loaves. To be spectacular, throw yourself down. And to be powerful, I will give you all these kingdoms. There he affirmed God as the only source of his identity you must worship the Lord your God and serve Him alone. Solitude is the place of the great struggle and the great encounter, the struggle against the compulsions of the false self and the encounter with the loving God who offers Himself as the substance of the new self. Mm. So, really, just amazing there because even as priest, it's so easy to have your identity yeah. in the affirmations of others or in your own busyness of looking at all I've accomplished. And it doesn't seem that that sort of, um, being hurried all the time was a part of the ministry of our Lord. (laughs) I mean, who's busier than almighty God yet. I'm going to retreat to be alone to pray. Right. So read that one too. And that's, that's a really quick read as well. Yeah. It's not even a hundred pages.
1: Yeah, that's a that's a really interesting insight, Father Matt. Um I, I reflect on that often when I think of the busyness of life and how our Lord, when I got busy in his ministry when the, the, the crowds were throwing around, he wasn't necessarily, you know, um he wasn't necessarily going to get rid of his retreat time and how the crowds were really trying to trying to find him, but he was really found at prayer. Hmm. Something for us, I don't know. <laughs> I, I think it's time for a retreat. Mm-hmm. So for, uh, for my uh, third book, um, this is a work of, of patristic literature, and actually the first patristic literature that I actually ever read on the assignment of very dear friend and seminary professor, Father Thomas Buchan. I forget which class, sorry, Thomas. But he had us read uh, Athanasius and his book on the Incarnation, And this book I have bought many times and given away many times. Um, And, you know, if you ever speak at my church, I generally speaking will get you a copy and send you away with it and hope you enjoy it. Uh, And in in my own life, you know, I I consistently come back to it. And, um, and, you know, if you haven't read this one before, uh, it is, I think, a very approachable work of patristic uh, material. Uh, And most, most um, editions actually have a foreword by C.S. Lewis, uh, which is pretty cool. Um, I wasn't expecting that the first time I cracked it open, but read just a beautiful, uh, really a beautiful foreword by C.S. Lewis. Um, And this work is really just giving an account of why, why would God do something like become a human being? Like why do that? And of course, that's a that's a body of theology that uh, you know keeps finding its way out throughout the histories of the, throughout the church throughout the church's history, and so in this part of, of the text, he's giving I think uh, one of the one of the most energetic uh, explanations as to why God would become man, and uh, Athanasius writes to us he saw how the surpassing wickedness of men was mounting up against them. He saw also their universal liability to death. All this he saw, and pitying our race, moved with compassion for our limitation, unable to endure that death should have the mastery rather than that his creatures should perish and the work of his father for us men come to naught. He took to himself a body, a human body, even as our own. Nor did he will merely to become embodied or merely to appear. Had that been so, he could have revealed his divine majesty in some other and better way, says Athanasius. No, he took our body, and not only so, he took it directly from a spotless, stainless virgin without the agency of human father, a pure body untainted by intercourse with man. He, the mighty one, the artificer of all, himself prepared this body in the Virgin as a temple for himself and took it for his very own as the instrument through which he was known and in which he dwelt, thus taking a body like our own, because all our bodies are liable to the corruption of death. He surrendered his body to death instead of all and offered it to the father. And so the beauty of this work, it's a very short work too. um, it is both about the incarnation and about the cross and passion. Um, and well worth your time. And certainly, I return to it as as I can. So, one of my faves.
0: All right, we're going to jump to some fiction. One of my Ooh. favorite works of fiction. I wanted to include on this list The Lord of the Rings. Yeah. Perhaps you've seen the movies, which the movies are awesome. I've got them on Blu-ray, extended edition. Extended edition.
1: edition. But the books so good. are
0: even better. <laughs> yeah. The books are much better. I think they did what they had to do to put it on film. You can't just like act out every page. I get that. You've got a, it's a different medium. Yeah. But I don't know if I miss Bombadil. That's a hot take, I know, but. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it, that would be super weird in the movie, yeah. yeah. But if you, I don't know, if you just like reading. Yeah. I don't know. <laughs> If oh yeah, you like no, beautiful absolutely. Language. I mean, The Lord of the Rings is just incredible, and he he if builds. If you like the... imagination,
1: you know. Oh yeah, like, he yeah.
0: builds this whole world, this mythology. Yeah. So a couple quotes from that you've probably heard this one if you've seen the movies. This is from Bilbo's 111th <laughs> birthday speech. I love this. He says, "I don't know half of you half as well as I should like, and I like less than half of you." Half as well as you deserve. It's pretty good. <laughs> and I love in the movie how they have, well, the take they take, where they're like, yeah, oh, that's uh. yeah. <laughs> so good. And then this is right before the Fellowship uh, gets rerouted and they have to go through the minds of mm. Moria. It says this, the wildest imaginings that dark rumor had ever suggested to the Hobbits fell altogether short of the actual dread and wonder of Moria. Uh, Pretty oh good. My gosh It's so good. Makes me want to read it again. It totally does. So if you've never
1: Yeah I mean, worked like, through it. it yeah. It's fun. It's fun. And it's it's one of those things too where like when you And it's not short. No, it's not. No, it's not. <laughs> not short at all. Not short and at all. There's Don't. parts that
0: there's some parts that drag. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> But I, it's
1: really worth it. My secret shame, well, now my public shame, is that I always get locked in, I always get stuck in the, the journey narratives out of the Shire. So, like, I kind of skip ahead a little bit. Yeah. Sorry. <laughs> uh,
0: but, just get to Rivendell. Yeah, just I'll get to Rivendell, up, yeah. yeah. <laughs>
1: um, but, you know, I think one of the things that makes Lord of the Rings uh, trilogy uh, such an amazing work for me personally is, like how much language is in it, you know, uh, how, how, how Tolkien uses language, you know, he created like all these different like cultures, like out of, not out of nowhere, but pretty darn close. Um, it's just, it's such an incredible piece. And, um, I don't know if anybody's really done anything that comes close. Maybe, I think some people have said that George R.R. R. Martin and Game of Thrones or maybe J.K. Rowling, but, those are both fine, but I don't I, see it. I, I don't see it. Yeah, yeah. We're gonna get. There's rusted. such depth. Yeah, yeah. yeah.
0: Tolkien, it's unreal.
1: I mean, when he's got thousands of years of his world's history planned out, mapped out, and still being you know unearthed even to this day by sure. his family and released, it's just an amazing work. Cool. Okay. Well, from uh, the beauty of uh, of literature to um, the, I don't know. <laughs> to the hellish boardroom of the academy, I don't know. <laughs> uh, now, uh, you know, my next my next book is a uh, is a is a a book of academic theology that that I've I've really enjoyed. Right after seminary, I felt like uh, my first Trinity Sunday was coming very soon, and felt like I needed a little bit of help to get uh, a decent sermon together and. So I started reading uh, quite extensively in, uh, in Trinitarian theology. And my favorite book of this time of study is a book called Nicaea and its Legacy. And it's really a work of, his, of historical theology and really showing and presenting the uh, complexity of the theological debates and, uh, and, and really some of the personal uh, debates In uh, the fourth century, uh, well beyond uh, coming into Nicaea and then on into Constantinople. And so um, it is (laughs) very dense. And uh, I would say that even though I have completed it, I would probably need to go back into it to fully enjoy it again. It's, but it was a very good, I have not read this one. It's, it's excellent. It's excellent. It's by Louis Ayers, uh, who is, um, I believe, I believe he's at Marquette now. Um, and he's a, he's a tremendous scholar. And, um, I think, I think it's really hard to pull a quote from a work like this because every, every time you find something that seems like a good pull quote, it's actually an you know, ensconced in like this huge, sure. this huge piece of argument. It's glacial in its approach. And fine reading, too. Um, but as he completes his, his introduction, uh, he writes, In many ways, the argument of the final chapter of his book is not that modern Trinitarianism has engaged with pro-Nicene theology badly, but that it has barely engaged with it at all. As a result, the legacy of Nicaea remains paradoxically the unnoticed ghost at the modern Trinitarian feast. And really what this book is trying to do, and I think the final few chapters are really excellent at this, where he really wants the church, and he's a Roman Catholic, so he's really concerned about the theological life of the Roman Catholic Church, but really all churches. And he's very clear that this is a book for the church, the entire church. That uh, it's very important for us to be critical, mindful of the fourth century as we seek to reclaim, uh, and, and, you know, renew Trinitarian theology. And he's very, um, he, he mentions many times a renewal of Trinitarian, Orthodox Trinitarian theology, um, in many, uh, places in the church Catholic, which is encouraging to somebody like Lewis Ayers and people like Father Matt and I and everybody else who's really interested in Trinitarian orthodoxy, Um, So if you're interested in um, really, really intense um, historical theology, this is good for you. If you're into the particular ways in which the fourth century describes and um, articulates the vocabulary and grammar of the Holy Trinity, especially as we see it in the creeds, this book is for you. I can't recommend it enough. It is like the elements of the spiritual life, very dense, yeah. uh, but
0: worth 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 uh, taking the time. Well, another pretty dense book, but I think can be a good starting place for people that really want to dig into patristics is Early Christian Doctrines oh, yeah. by J and D. Kelly. Yeah. I first encountered this book. I can't remember if I was in my undergrad or one of my first master's courses, but This was in a Baptist school, and it just blew me away as I dug into the fathers and, you know, early Christology and the councils and especially as it uh, pertained to the sacramental theology of the church fathers. And one line in there that uh, just stuck with me, Mm. I'll never forget reading it because it just blew me away. It was just a simple sort of summary of what he was going to lay out. It wasn't anything like incredibly beautiful. But speaking of, you know, the church fathers from Nicaea, particularly on towards uh, Chalcedon or Chalcedon, depending on how your seminary professor pronounces that. (laughs) Uh, I've heard it both ways by really smart people. Um, He writes, Eucharistic teaching, it should be understood at the outset, was in general unquestioningly realist. So the church fathers understood that the bread and wine which we receive in the holy eucharist is indeed the body and blood of our lord it's right. this great mystery, this sacrament. And it's just a book if you want to again if you want to dig in that I would recommend that you read cuz I, I don't think he's I think he's very even-handed. Oh yeah. And it'll just, I think it'll change your life and really help you understand the early church. And yeah. What they yeah.
1: That's exactly right. And I think, uh, of the many works that are like source books of, of patristic theology, I think that it's very easily approached. I think, um, you know, certainly first year seminarians are reading it as we speak at, you know, uh, as they, they, they dig deep into the patristic period, but, anybody who's interested in, uh, the church's theology in, in the uh, patristic period, I think anybody can read it. I certainly don't think it's, um, you know, just for the academy. Um, you know, you're, you're more likely to find it there, but, um, you, I think, I think people will find, uh, Kelly's prose, uh, to be, um, not only informative, but enjoyable. Um, at least that's my experience with it. And I've used it, I've used this book, on just about every every class I've put together I've referred back to Jane reference. Yeah. It's so good. Um, okay, well, I'm gonna wrap up mine uh my list with a book that I read actually earlier this year. Uh I fell uh super hard into the uh the show Chernobyl on uh, HBO, which was, if you don't know, it was a mini series about the 1986 nuclear disaster in the Ukraine. And, uh, it's, it is a terrifying piece of television. It is intense. It is, um, there is not a lot of like light or, or, uh, there's not like a lot of like comic relief. Uh, it is, it is intense. It is great. It is fantastically acted, but, I, I was so curious by, uh, by, you know, I was four years old when, when Chernobyl happened. And so, you know, we, we uh, kind of li- have lived in the shadow of Chernobyl and, and maybe not even realized it. And so I was super curious about it. And I read this book. It's called Midnight uh, in Chernobyl. And it's a, a long form journalistic piece that's really going through all sorts of facets of, of the Chernobyl accident from the political side, which is frustrating, um, you know, looking at the kind of uh, the, the major faults of communism, especially Soviet communism, looking at uh, the nuclear physics of it. So I had to figure out like how this works from a scientific standpoint, which is not how my mind works. <laughs> uh, but I can I could probably fake a, a description of the reaction that's happening in the Chernobyl incident. So that's kind of cool uh, because of this book. And, uh, and, and some of the ramifications, many of the ramifications that follow, uh, including, uh, you know, one of the things that he describes uh, after Gorbachev uh, is that, that Chernobyl really is the, the end of, uh, of the Russian, of, of Soviet communism as we knew it in the Cold War. And it is, it is so dark. I mean, it, is, it is absolutely soul-crushing a read. Um, and yet... And yet there was a moment where even in this moment, uh, a very personal, very intimate tale about one of the firefighters who's first on the scene. I mean, they didn't know anything about this stuff. And they're they They send the firefighters from uh, from the town around the power station and they're they're just covered in radioactive material. And they're they're getting this radioactive poisoning that is like destroying their bodies like in ways that the world had never seen, right? That's one of the things that we talk about in this in this book is like the the human body was never ever meant to have to endure radiation sickness. And so this man is 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 dying in the in 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 the in the um in the hospital. Uh and um I I actually think that this person lived to uh to tell this tale a little bit longer but um, it talks about this, this firefighter whose last name is Yevchenko. And um, so we, we read, a good communist, Yevchenko, wasn't religious and knew no prayers, which for us is like, oh my gosh, can you imagine? Like, there's nothing. There's a vacuum of spirituality. It is dark. It is such a dark existence. But then he continues, and this is, this is something that I had to pause and, and I stopped reading the book for a day to really think and pray through this line, this one line. Yet each evening he lay awake and pleaded with God to let him live through one more night. There was no, he was taught that there was no God, and yet he pleaded with him because he's written on our hearts pleaded with him in the hospital bed. And, uh, and I, I, I'm so moved by that as a, as a sign of God's provision for us and uh, the depths of our need for him. It's a remarkable book. I wouldn't read it just for that quote, yeah. <laughs> but if you're curious about that, uh, that part of uh, recent human history, then you, you can do no better. So,
0: Awesome. Yeah. We're going to wrap up with a book called For the Life of the World by Alexander Schmemann. He was an Eastern Orthodox priest and scholar. And it's a book ultimately about uh, the Eucharist that, you know, Christ gives his body, his, his flesh and blood for the life of the world, yeah. as he says. And it's really, he's doing in sacramental and liturgical theology, Something not altogether different from what Wright is doing in Surprised by Hope. Right, yeah. With his eschatology, cosmology, anthropology of, guys, we can't be so dualistic. Like, heaven and earth are to be joined together and married in the last day. Yeah. And that we were created by God to be united with him in an embodied existence. And so, Schmemann is talking about, you know, the sacramental... Nature of the cosmos that the world is to be filled with God's presence uh, and life uh, over against, you know, the sort of um, materialism where, you know, mm-hmm. this is just all it is, or the, the dualism that we find right. in even pockets of, of Christendom where, sure. you know, the material and the immaterial kind of stay away from each yeah. other. And I thought. This quote that he has early on in the book is just incredible. And maybe in a way uh, goes with that quote that you did from the Chernobyl book. Yeah, yeah. That yeah, hunger right for yeah, God. That's right. He writes this. He says, centuries of secularism have failed to transform eating into something strictly utilitarian. Food is still treated with reverence. A meal is still a Right. The last natural sacrament of family and friendship. Of life, that is more than eating and drinking. To eat is still something more than to maintain bodily function. People may not understand what that something more is, but they nonetheless desire to celebrate it. They are still hungry and thirsty for sacramental life. Mm. And that's true just from experience. I mean, even in... Taco Bell. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Oh, man, that's probably not what he has in mind. <laughs> probably not. <laughs> but even in, you know, a culture that's moving away from its religious rhythm and its sacramental rhythm, everything we do is marked by food. Right. And it's not purely, oh, yeah, well, people got to eat. There's a celebratory aspect to it. yeah. And then ultimately he's pointing us to that the meal, the meal, which is the Holy Eucharist. right. It, that that line,
1: food is still treated with reverence. You know, uh, in my own neighborhood. Not when you go to
0: Taco Bell, <laughs> but most of most of the other times. Well, I mean, it depends on your approach, Father Matt. <laughs> I get out, I get out my china we got for a wedding.
1: <laughs> oh, gross. <laughs> well, uh, we hope that you uh, take take a look at some of these books if you haven't uh, seen them already, or if you have seen them already maybe approach them with a little bit more appreciation a different kind of appreciation so as we leave behind this uh this book wormhole <laughs> 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 why uh, <laughs> let's talk about our our bounden duty which is our sermon first pass uh this week's uh lectionary lessons set before us include deuteronomy 30 15 through 20 uh, the first psalm, Philemon 1 through 21, and Luke fourteen twenty five through 33. Looking at Deuteronomy 30, Moses said to all Israel the words which the Lord commanded him, See, I have set before you today life and prosperity, death and adversity. If you obey the commandments of the Lord your God, I am commanding you today, by loving the Lord your God, walking his ways, and observing his commandments, decrees and ordinances, then you shall live and become numerous in the Lord your God. Will bless you in the land that you're entering to possess. Uh, there's something so clean about God saying, "Follow me, do what I say, and you'll have life. If you don't,
0: you'll die, and things are going to be terrible." Which is the same sort of juxtaposition you get in Psalm one. Right. It's like this is the way of the blessed. Yeah. Right. This is the way the righteous. This is the way the unrighteous. Right.
1: It It's you know, in as pastors as Christians, you know, we we see we ourselves, you know, we have trouble at times walking the path, and we know we know what straying away from from God does. It leads to ruin every time, and yet we still do it. And so you know, uh, it's uh, when I read this this afternoon, I was just like, oh, it's so nice to see it so stark. Every now and then. Just having it laid out for you like that is, is refreshing. and bringing us back to hearten to the elements of the spiritual life uh, that the life in union with Christ is really about seeking after his blessing, uh, his life, so that we don't have to deal with death adversity. In fact, the life that we find in God in Christ is uh, all about life and prosperity that that death and adversity find their find their nadir their defeat in christ the risen christ so choose life that you and your descendants may live loving the lord your god obeying him and holding fast to him for that means life to you in the length of days so that you may live in the land that the lord swore to give to your ancestors so you know stop screwing around and obey god
0: <laughs> by his grace <laughs> yeah we can over complicate the christian life yeah Christian life is not easy, No, but it is rather straightforward, right? I would say. God's kind of laid out like, (laughs) hey guys, you know. Yeah, it kind of sounds like (laughs) echoes of last week's podcast, but yeah. (laughs) Yeah, it does. (laughs) Um, And then there's, of course, Philemon, which, you know, might be a really good book to dig in in a small group study or a rector's forum, you know, because you're basically what Philemon is about is... Paul is writing Philemon, whose slave, Onesimus, has ran away and fled, and but has been of great use to Paul in the spiritual life, mm-hmm. a great companion and beloved brother. And he's writing Philemon and saying, you need to forgive him for running away, number one. Yeah. And then you need to receive him as a brother now. Right. Which is the echoes of... This is sort of in epistolary form, is that a word? And letter You're form... You're known
1: for coining new terms,
0: Father. Yeah, it's, that's probably a neologism there, but working out in real time, we're seeing his teaching in Galatians that yeah. in Christ there's neither slave nor free, yeah. that at the foot of the cross is level ground. Yeah. And I think a letter like Philemon, I don't think, I know it would have been profoundly out of kilter with the thinking of Paul's day in the Greco-Roman Absolutely. world and would have been, I mean, would have been mystifying to the average Roman citizen. Wait, you're saying what to this guy? It's like, yeah, that's our brother. And in Christ, we're to treat each other as, as brothers, as family. And really an amazing book. Isn't its is, I love the way that Paul does this, by the way, because
1: he, he, he lays out, spiritual theological Christian rationale for the level playing field, if you will. Sure. He lays it out for him. He appeals to his Christian identity, uh, Philemon. Yeah. And then he says, but I don't want to force ya. (laughs) Yeah. But I could. Sure. Which I, I, I appreciate on some level, you know, uh, that, that there's an appeal to, uh, there's an appeal to the, to the, to the mind, to the, to the heart, uh, But also letting, letting, letting him know that this is a sort of like, uh, this is an apostolic direction in some level uh, that we mean business about having, you know, the relationships that we have as brothers and sisters in Christ. Like this, this is a real thing.
0: Yep. And and so there's this contrast. It's kind of neat because Paul isn't saying that all types of authority are bad because he's exercising his authority as a spiritual father addressing a broken authority structure and he's doing what any good father would want he wants his children in the faith to do the right thing because they see that it's right and they want to and they want to honor god not because he makes them do it yeah right yeah yeah it's really kind of neat it's very paternal in the best way luke chapter 14 verses 25 through 33, and I'll just read you a section section of it. It's where Jesus says famously, and this is the tenor of Luke's gospel. Luke, it's where you realize immediately that following Jesus Christ is serious business. He says, whoever comes to me and does not hate father and mother, wife and children, brothers and sisters, yes, and even life itself, cannot be my disciple. Whoever does not carry the cross and follow me cannot be my disciple. And then at the end, and this really hits home. I didn't know what to do with verse 33. So therefore, none of you can become my disciple if you do not give up all your possessions. Now, what I've heard so many times uh, with Luke, and I've heard it in sermons, but I've also heard it in my own soul. Right. I want to find a way <laughs> to make this gospel say something other than what it's saying. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Right. Yeah, right? Yeah, absolutely, man. Like, Christ is is it. Yeah. And following him is primary, and following him is serious business. Yeah. I'm thinking back to Colossians chapter 3. Yep. For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ and God. When Christ, who is your life, right. appears, you also appear with him in glory. Yeah. Like, not part of your life. Who is your life.
1: Right. Yeah, it's it's the, re- orient, <laughs> the reorienting of possession, right? That... You know, you give up your possessions because you understand that they're really gods anyway. And since they're gods, well, what else is gods? You. So take up your cross. Yeah, Luke is tough, man.
0: (laughs) He's coming for you. (laughs) And the thing that I find just especially convicting, and again, not in just like self-deprecating or or wallowing in in guilt or anything like that, but... But challenging and, and really convicting is that we have in Scripture and in the history of the church and the lives of the saints, people that took Jesus at his word when they yeah. read this text. Anthony, weigh the heart. When you heard the gospel, go sell all you have and follow me. Anthony realizes, I think this is in the life of Anthony, that those words of the gospel were meant for him personally. Yeah. So he didn't say, well, well what he's really getting yeah. at is... And we have to really ask the Holy Spirit to help us to not try to mitigate the very Word of God. Yeah. It's one of the biggest temptations Absolutely. in all of the Christian life, even as priests. Especially as preachers. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So don't do that. And by God's grace, may we not do that. May we not. We probably will, though.
1: <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, thanks again for joining us and the sacristy. Well, let's pray together. This is uh, the general uh, thanksgiving, which you can find in the prayer book and the daily offices.
0: Almighty God, Father Father of all all mercies, mercies, we, we thine unworthy servants, servants do give give thee most most humble and hearty thanks for all all thy goodness and and loving loving kindness kindness to us and to all all men. men. We bless thee for our creation, preservation, preservation, and all the blessings of this this life. But above all, for thine inestimable love, To to whom with thee and the Holy Holy Ghost Ghost, be all honor and glory, world without end. end. Amen. All right, thanks for joining us. That's another one in the books. Right there. In the book wormhole. Oh my gosh. (laughs) Don't do it. He's going to do it. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you so much. Blessings.